If you grew up in church, you are probably familiar with the term worship. In fact, in your bulletins, when you open it up, it's right there in the middle. It says church and worship. But I don't know if, like me, you ever stopped to consider or ask yourself, what does worship mean? See, worship is something that is embedded, like Alan said earlier, in our DNA. Because every creature that has ever lived on this planet, every human being who's ever worked on this earth, has had the need to worship. Now, worship is defined as recognizing that something is worth something else. So when we find something that we, that we recognize that has a value, we place it in a place of esteem. See, I can tell you now, without even visiting your homes, that there are things in your house that occupy special places. Because those things, call it pictures, diplomas, trophies, even dishes, occupy a special place of worth. But worship is not only related to things. In fact, it should not be related to things. It should be related to people. So when we talk about worship, worship is recognizing that someone is of worth. Now, through history, men has been looking to please the gods, to worship the gods. And, and, and the worship of gods has been because of the idea that if the gods were worshipped in the proper way, and the right manner, that the gods will provide for their needs. They would provide rain. They would provide food. They would fix the problems with their children. They would fix the problems with their spouses. But the problem with that is that humanity has always been living at the expense of the gods. Another problem with that is that by trying to please the gods in the right way, always a sacrifice has been the way to please them. The Aztecs had this thing that they always offer sacrifices. The traditional Aztec sacrifice was that a young woman was placed on the altar and the priest at the highest building will open her chest and extract her heart as an offerings to the gods. And through every culture, sacrifice has been part of worship. Now, the tricky part is when trying to please the gods... To find out how to please them the right way. Fortunately for humanity, there's always been people like me. Priests, holy men, 
who guided the people into worshiping the right way, into offering the right sacrifice, into doing the proper thing to appease the gods. Unfortunately, it appears that in history, pleasing the gods was parallel to pleasing the holy men. In fact, some of you today might question the church because you think that is still the same practice. Later on in history, God established a way to worship Him. And we call it through the scriptures the ancient Jewish worship. And this worship was Similar but different than the other worships that people practice to please their gods. It was similar because a sacrifice was required. But it was different. Because see, Jewish worship, biblical worship in the Old Testament was not designed to sacrifice to please the gods. It was designed to remember a covenant. To remember a contract. So it was not designed to please God. It was designed to remember a future promise. So as, as we look at what happened in the, in the Old Testament, we discover that God was not really interested on the sacrifice. He was more interested on obedience from his people. But see, the obedience that God was requiring was not a blind obedience, was not an obedience as a tyrant. It was an obedience based on love. The best way to explain it is like this. Husbands, let's say that tomorrow you show up at your house you knock on the door with a bouquet of flowers. Now, I already see some smiles. The weird thing is the husbands are smiling. I don't know why. But you show up with the bouquet. You knock on the door and your wife comes out the door and she sees you there clean, well-dressed with a bouquet of flowers on your arm. The next thing that you will see is that your wife now has a smile on her face. And you say, honey, these flowers are for you. Most likely, you get a, aww. But at that moment, when the emotions are high, you say, I brought you these flowers for two reasons. One, because I am your husband. So you are still safe. Until you say the second thing. And that's what husband's supposed to do. What do you think that is going to happen to you? The next thing that will happen to you is that you're going to be wearing those flowers. See, that is what happens when God is worshipped out of duty. 
So what God is saying, what I want you to remember is that when you worship, when you spend time with me, when you offer your worship to me, it's not based on duty, it's based on love. Let's change the scene. You knock at the door. Your wife, op your wife opens the door and you have those flowers and you say, honey, I love you so much. When I looked at those flowers, I saw those flowers and I thought that there's not a single bouquet of flowers that can match your beauty. But I brought it just to remember that I love you. <laughs> I think that those flowers would be put in a, in a base. Or is it a boss? I always get them confused. Base. But you know what I mean. So what happened in the sacrifice that Israel practiced was that God wanted his people to experience the greatest act of love that this world would ever see. In fact, Proverbs 21.3, Solomon, the wisest man who lived on earth besides Jesus, said these words about sacrifice. The Lord is more pleased when we do what is right and just than when we offer him, what? Sacrifices. So what God wants for us is to have a worship experience not based on duty, not based on a checklist, not based on a to-do list, but based on a response of love. Now, the, in the process of the worship of the Old Testament, there was a practice. And this practice required a ceremony that was only once a year. And this was the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was very special. Because there were many sacrifices that actually led to that day. You see, in, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish culture, the, this Day of Atonement was waited for, awaited by everyone. Because everyone wanted to be part of it. The Day of Atonement was so special that people with connections got as close to, as they could to the temple. Now, atonement is a word that we don't use today very much. But atonement, it's kind of interesting because atonement, as we can see in English, at one meant, it was designed, it was designed for the people to become one with God. It was designed to restore a relationship. In fact, the Hebrew term for atonement is just to cover. So when we think about atonement, atonement is to cover something bad with something good. It's to cover our sin in perfection with the perfection of the blood. And you're cheating now because you know what blood I'm talking about. It's the blood of Jesus. So atonement was a symbol of our imperfection. Covered. By the perfection of Jesus. God designed it to restore a relationship. Now individuals brought daily their sacrifices. So when they brought their sacrifices was because they committed a sin. It committed a, they committed a sin either a public or against God directly. And when it was a public sin, they have to 
go to the person they have offended, the person that they had sinned against, and provide restoration for their fault. And they would come into the temple to bring their, their sacrifice to be offered for the forgiveness of their sin. But on the Day of Atonement, a series of sacrifices were performed. Because on that day, the priest will offer a sacrifice, a special sacrifice for the sins of the entire nation for one whole year. At the end of the ceremony, the high priest will place his hands on the head of a goat. And this goat will be led by someone out of the temple, into the city, out of the walls of the city, through the villages that were neighboring the city, all the way into the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, that goat carrying the sins of everyone for one whole year would represent that one day God will take away the sins of everyone forever. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was an imperfect way, an imperfect fix for a greater problem, greatest problem, that would point to the perfect fix. One day, there was a man, nobody really knew where he came from. Except Matthew says that he was, he lived in the wilderness. And this man was not the common guy. In fact, his diet and his dress were a little bit weird. His name was John, but John was a very common name in the, in the, in the scripture. So he needed to have a nickname. And he was known as John the Baptist. Apparently, he had gone to the Presbyterian church. He has gone to the Methodist church. But he this. Uh, just kidding. Just, just checking to see you're awake. A better translation would be John the Baptizer. Because what he was doing was that in the desert, the Bible tells us that he was speaking about something new that God was going to do. Something new that will happen that will change everything. And the Bible says that all of Judea went to listen to him. Now, as John is preaching, he is speaking about someone who will come and make everything new. The priests of the time, the, 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 the teachers of the law wanted some part of the action. And they went to see John. But John, knowing that his words will cuss Division will cause a change. Because see, every time that change is about to happen, there's resistance. John spoke of this man. And when he spoke of this man who was to come, he said, you know, when he comes, I'm not even worthy of being a servant. I'm not even worthy of untying his shoes. But one afternoon, as he was in the peak of his impact, 
on the peak of his message. When God realized that the time was perfect. As John was baptizing in the Jordan River, he looked up. And the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29 tells us, The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now things change because now John is saying, Look, this is a permanent solution to our ultimate problem. The permanent fix for our pathetic condition. This is the final sacrifice for sin. In fact, the author of Hebrews writes this way in verse uh, 3 of Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4. Pay attention to this. If this is the moment where you're going to be awake the whole morning, this is, this is it. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. A symbol? Yes. A perfect visual aid? Yes. Capable to take sin away? No. They were just an imperfect remembrance of the perfect future. John said, the lamb that takes away the sins. Not one person, not one nation of the world. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And he came to fulfill it because the law said that the wages of sin are death. So he came to die and replace the entire sacrifice system. After Jesus died on that cross, there was no need for sacrifices. There would no longer be a need for sacrifice for forgiveness. And sin will never have to be covered up again. God sacrificed on behalf of the human race. And instead of demanding, as the gods of the pagans did, God send us. He offers something through Jesus. He offered true peace. And not just a cover, but a reconciliation, a reunion, a getting together that when sin entered the world, created separation, now God is bringing us together through Jesus. It is about a restored relationship. You see, religion tells us that you have to do certain things to be okay in the eyes of God. But God tells us, I don't want religion. I want a relationship. And that is exactly what he came to restore. So worship is not about the covering of sin anymore. It's not about pleasing the gods. It's not about atonement for sin. Worship is about a remembrance. Remembrance that we don't gather in this place to ask God to come down, but we gather in this place to remember that God came down. 
It's an act of celebration. It's an act of celebration that we no longer have to die for our sin, but that somebody else did in our place. That is why we sing. And I don't really care what you sing, if they're hymns or if they're worship songs or they're country songs. I don't care. But the reason why we sing is because we're celebrating that Jesus took our place. That the promise was fulfilled. It's an act of submission. Because we can't pay Jesus back for what he did. And because I can't pay Jesus back, what I can do is to live for him. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So I like to think that Christian worship is more than just coming one day a week and sing and pray and sit for an hour. Christian worship should be embedded in the way we make decisions during our daily lives. Christian worship is part of who we are in and outside of the church. Christian worship is not what we do. It's who we are. So if there's anything that we need to remember is that Christian worship is, a, is to remember and celebrate what Christ did for us and to submit to what his love for us requires. So Christian worship is to remember and celebrate what Christ did for us and to submit to what his love requires of us. In fact, in chapter 12 of Hebrews and verse 2, it, it, the author put it in such a way that it's just amazing. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our sin. Now, let me tell you something about this word perfecter. The word perfecter is, it, it, it comes from the term telestai. And, and you know the word tele because if you're British, you know what a telly is. And in America, you have a television. Or a TV. Tele means distance. So perfection means that the one who started the work in us will complete it. But the only way that that perfection can be obtained is when it is perfected. It is worked through Jesus Christ. Because he is the perfecter. Let's read it again. Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So family, in one afternoon, in one afternoon, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he changed the definition of worship. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So today, God offers us a seat, a symbol, a symbol of what it will be in eternity. 
the beautiful thing about communion is that it allows us to experience worship in all three ways. First, allows us to remember what Jesus has done for us. Second, allows us to celebrate that Jesus has already given us the victory. And third, help us to submit in humility to the power that came from the cross. Communion could be seen as the ultimate act of worship. And as we celebrate communion and the way that we do it in the Adventist church, the way we believe is that you don't have to be a member of, of the Seventh-day Adventist church to participate. But there's a requirement that you have to believe that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. That Jesus has given you the ability to be perfected in his love. That Jesus has enabled you to change your life. That Jesus is the ultimate Savior. As we serve our neighbor, as we accept Jesus' sacrifice, and as we remember his promise of his return. So one of the things that we do here in our church is that b before we participate of the emblems, because that is what they are, emblems. There are a symbol of what Jesus has already done. See, Jesus doesn't have to die every time we have communion. Jesus has done it once and for all. That's what the scripture says. So these symbols are emblems that point to that event that changed the history of the world and the definition of worship. But before that, the scripture tells us that before Jesus died on the cross, he was in the upper room with his disciples. And being the king of the universe, he knelt down at the feet of his disciples to wash their feet. And we get today to participate of that act of humility as we do it to one another. So in the back, we have a room for couples, a room for men, and a, a room for women to, to do that. When we're done with the ordinance of humility, we'll come back. We, we'll worship God in song, and then we'll worship God with the emblems. And together, we'll experience the greatest act of worship. When our hearts are united in submission to the one, to the only one that is worthy of being praised. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is at this time that we ask you for your presence with us. But not just in the building. We want your presence in our hearts so that we become humble enough to respond to your love and submission. We ask for your presence in our mind so we have a clear understanding of who you are and who we are so that we can take our right place and give you, and give you your righteous place. We ask for your presence among us so that we can see each other as brothers and sisters. And we can see you as the only one worthy of being praised. We ask for your presence in this place. 
so that we can worship in the way it was meant to be. In the name of Jesus, 